This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States. The attacks and the U.S. response to them have had profound consequences for American domestic and foreign policy, as well as for international relations and global security. JMU Civic and JMU X Labs have partnered to gather and share stories of James Madison University alumni who have served and continue to serve in the military. If you have a story to contribute for our 9-11 at 20 series, please email civic at jmu.edu. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong-Whaley. And I'm Logan Ziegler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. I'm Jacqueline Dobern, Communication Specialist here at JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, Director of JMU Civic and Faculty Member in the Department of Political Science. In this episode, we talk with Stephen R. Shapiro, the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, which is the nation's oldest and largest civil liberties organization, founded over a century ago in response to the massive suppression of freedom of speech and the press by the government during World War I. Steve shares his legal expertise on the foreign and domestic policy consequences of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States and the government's response to them. We invite you to respond and engage in the conversation with us via social media. You can tweet at us at JMU Civic or join us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Enjoy the episode. Stephen Shapiro, welcome. Um, the first question that we have is, can you start by sharing how September 11th, 2001 in the United States response changed you? Well, I, I, it had a profound uh, effect on me personally and professionally, but I'm not sure that distinguishes me from most Americans who were alive on, on, on that day. Uh, but my own experience was you know, reasonably uh, intense. Um, I flew that morning uh, from New York to Washington. Um, not the place you wanted to leave and not the place you wanted to arrive necessarily. Um, but I flew on an early morning flight. I had been scheduled to fly the night before and there were severe thunderstorms in New York. And so I couldn't get out of the airport and I had to be in Washington for an 8 a.m. meeting. And so I was on the 6 a.m. shuttle from New York to uh, D.C. And as you may recall, um, it was this absolutely gorgeous day, severe, clear, as the pilots uh, describe it. And so my flight was entirely um, uneventful. Uh, uh, landed in uh, Washington on time, went to a meeting and was standing in front of a room of people um, talking when somebody came up and told us at that point um, simply that the uh, World Trade Center had been hit by a plane, which was all that anybody initially knew. Um, and gradually more information uh, started, quickly more information started to come out. We were in a hotel. The meeting was occurring in a hotel. They locked it down the hotel in Washington. I remember they were not letting people in or out. 
Um, and the 60, 70 people who were in the room all then retreated to the hotel bar because it had a television um, to just watch the unfolding events. Uh, and obviously there was concern in multiple levels. There was concern about what this meant. There was concern uh, about the uh, ACLU employees because the ACLU headquarters are about a mile from ground zero. Um, and we didn't know what was going on on the ground and uh, concern about my family um, that was still back in New York. Um, I have a wife and I had a have a son, but at the time he was about to enter his sophomore year in college. I still had mother living um, uh, in, in the city. And it was before cell phones. Um, we couldn't connect by cell phones. Well, at least I didn't have a cell phone. And I remember standing on line for a payphone uh, in the in the hotel lobby. And the uh, circuits were, were jammed, as you can imagine, and took a long time to be able to get through. Ultimately, everybody, um, everybody was fine. Um, but uh, once it became clear what was going on, and then um, uh, you know, and forty minutes later, whatever the exact timing was, the Pentagon was hit, um, and then Washington really went into lockdown. Uh, the entire ACLU leadership uh, was there, uh, so a half a dozen of the senior leaders of the ACLU all were attending this meeting simultaneously. But the ACLU's executive director then and now uh, was a man named Anthony Romero, uh, and Anthony had begun um, as the ACLU's executive director one week earlier on September 4th, uh, 2001. So he was one week into his tenure um, at the time uh, of 9-11 and coincidentally began at the ACLU on the same day that Bob Mueller began at the FBI. Mueller also began his tenure on September 4th, uh, 2001. And it became a, a bond of sorts, I think, between the two of them as they interacted um, professionally over the, over the years. Uh, but, but very, very quickly um, uh, that morning, we started to do, well, two things. One was just to try to find out what was happening to the staff in New York and make sure everybody was safe. The building was evacuated. Everybody was safe. We didn't get back into our building for several weeks, um, but it took a while to track down the entire staff and make sure that everybody was 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 okay. Um, but uh, we also started to get calls from the press very very quickly, um, asking us what we thought the civil liberties implications of all this might be, um, and. We made a decision that morning, which I still think was the correct decision, uh, that we were not going to speculate about how the government might respond to what at the time appeared to be a still ongoing attack, um, and then either express concern or, or, or worry or, or warnings to the government about not overstepping in their response. That seemed entirely inappropriate to all of us under the circumstances. And we instead issued a press release um, just saying that um, we um, 
shared the concern of, of all Americans. We mourned the loss of life, you know, the condolences to the families of the people who had died, and we would react and respond uh, to the government's um, uh, next steps um, when the government took next steps. Uh, but we weren't going to jump out ahead and, um, and start doing that that morning. Uh, professionally, uh, what happened is that it obviously added an enormous set of issues um, that the ACLU felt obligated uh, to address and confront over the next several weeks, months, and years, beginning with passage of the Patriot Act very quickly, I think, in, in November of, of that year. And the thing about the ACLU is that we are a multi-issue organization. We're not a single issue organization. Uh, and so it was not as though all the other issues that the ACLU cared about had disappeared from our agenda. We were still worried about reproductive rights. We were still worried about prisoners' rights. We were still worried about LGBT rights and, and you know, the host of issues that the ACLU deals with. And we decided that we didn't have the luxury of abandoning that long, the, the, our longstanding commitment to those issues in order to focus single-mindedly on the aftermath of 9-11. We were somehow going to have to find the resources, both financial and human, to take on this very large set of issues um, in addition to everything else we were um, we were otherwise doing. And so the ACLU in, in the... the year or two after 9-11 um, really ramped up, increased the size of its staff, um, and uh, created a set of specialists that we really didn't have before uh, on the set of issues that were, that were, were, were generated by 9-11 at the same time that we continued uh, to do all the other work uh, that uh, we had to do. And um, I'll just say one, one last thing, which is, um, uh, very quickly, um, the civil liberties consequences of the government's response to 9-11 became clear, although we, we didn't even begin to glimpse the extent of it in those early, in those early days. Uh, but one of the, um, the first lawsuit that the ACLU filed uh, in the aftermath of 9-11 was a Freedom of Information Act request that the ACLU filed in conjunction with several other organizations. And the basis of the request was within days, uh, the government started to uh, round up what turned out to be hundreds of Muslims, um, primarily um, on immigration charges. They had overstayed their student visas or were otherwise out of status. It wasn't so much people who had snuck across the border, but people who, you know, had come in legally but were now out of status. Um, and were detaining them in facilities around the country uh, incommunicado. Um, so they had, the government would not release a name, uh, release release a list of the names of the people who had been arrested. They would not tell family members where they were being held. They were not allowing lawyers to have access to the people in detention. 
um, you know, things that that just seemed profoundly un-American. Uh, they had literally kind of disappeared into the system. Uh, so we filed a Freedom of Information Act to try to get the government to release the, na- release the names of the people and who had been detained and where they were being detained. Um, that that lawsuit was unsuccessful. Um, uh, we didn't we didn't prevail, uh, but I think it gave everybody a a sort of window into what we would be facing. So that's a not so short answer to your question. Can you just say a little bit more about not abandoning the other issues? Because I can I can put myself back to September 11th and think, you know what, all bets are off. This is where all of our focus needs to be. We are under attack. People are dying. Buildings are going down. What 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 is the value of continually focusing on these other issues if, if we are going to be in this new era, in this new state of war? I just wonder if you can say a little bit more about that. Because I, it, it, looking at it in, at 2021, it, it makes more sense to me than I, but I wonder how I would have thought about that at the time in 2001, as there's still smoke rising from the buildings. Well, I think um, there was smoke rising from the buildings, but but the, the ACLU is, in contexts like this, largely reactive, right? So um, we were not the ones who had to decide whether to launch missile attacks on Afghanistan. We had to wait until the government engaged in some behavior that we thought. Uh, threatened important civil liberties values and then decide at that point how to respond. So um, there's a certain there's a certain lag time where the government ramps up and then we're responding to uh, the government's uh, response. And I don't know what we would have done, honestly, if we had been unable to raise the resources or use the money that we you know had save for a rainy day, and this was a, a rainy day, um, uh, to do the work that we thought needed to be done in the wake of 9-11 um, without sacrificing all of our other you know, interests and concerns. If we were really forced to the choice and say we can't do everything, you know, uh, we're going to just have to move resources and put other things on hold for a while. Um, we might have had some hard choices to make, but it was not our preferred course of action because other problems, race, race, racial injustice didn't dis, I mean, in some ways it was magnified by 9-11, but it's not as though it disappeared, um, you know, after, after 9-11 and we weren't pre- willing to, to abandon that battle, for example, or reproductive rights. And, you know, thanks to a combination of circumstances, including the, the sort of wizardry of Anthony Romero, uh, uh, we were able to accumulate the resources that we thought we needed uh, to do what we needed to do. And of course, we were not alone. I mean, the AC, I'm proud of the role that the ACLU played, but there were other many other organizations in civil society that were responding to this as as well. And, you know, people were trying to work cooperatively. So it was not just our our resources. Um, I will say that one of the things that was uh, difficult was for the first, there were many things that were difficult, but one of the things that was difficult was for the first several years, virtually every brief that the government filed uh, began with a sentence that said something like this. 
On September 11, 2001, when nearly 3,000 Americans died in the worst uh, attack on U.S. soil uh, since Pearl Harbor, comma, right? That was that was the opening phrase, um, and the 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 clear implication, not very veiled, uh, both for the judge and for the lawyers on the other side, which you know often was us, but not always us, was. You know, we need to do what we need to do in order to make sure this doesn't happen again. And if you get in a narrow way, then the, you're, it's your, you're, you're responsible for what happens next. You know, and, um, uh, and that, um, that, that raised the stakes um, uh, sig- sig- significantly. And I think to the ACLU's credit, uh, it continued nonetheless um, to, um, you know, fight for what it thought was the, the correct and principled position. From your perspective and in the broadest terms, how did the U.S. response to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, including the global war on terror, subsequently global overseas contingency operations, impact American democracy? Well, that's a big question. Um, uh, I, I think it impacted, um, I, I'm assuming you're using the word democracy broadly and not simply um, you know, in terms of electoral politics, for, for example, though it certainly impacted, impacted that as well. But, but, but construing the term more, more broadly, I think, I think it sort of changed forever um, the relationship between um, the government and the people who who live in this country. I, I can't imagine that we are ever going to go back to a pre nine eleven world in 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 some in some ways. And you know, one of the things is um, uh, the United States has fought a series of wars over its history, um, and in virtually every war that the uh, United States has fought, fought that there has been a um, on how you think about it, a dilution or a suspension of of civil liberties. You know, including um, Lincoln suspending the writ of habeas corpus during the Civil War, the attack on um, uh, dissonance. Um, uh, the free speech rights of dissidents in World War One, the um, internment of Japanese Americans during World War Two, right? There's there's always been a shift in the balance, right, in wartime. Um, but every other war we fought uh, always had a defined end, and we always understood that it would have a defined end. We we didn't know when that you know we didn't know in 1942 that World War Two would end in 1945, but it was a conventional war in that sense. And we knew at some point, you know, assuming we were victorious, that it was going to end with, um, you know, a surrender and a peace treaty signed on, you know, a battleship somewhere um, in, in the Pacific. And then life would go back to normal, right? And every, the rights that had been suspended would be would be restored. Um uh, this was a very different kind of war and understood to be a very different kind of war from the beginning, if war is even the appropriate term to apply to what we were doing, uh, because there was never going to be a peace treaty. There was never going to be a moment when everybody said um, that 
okay, now the war is over and we can go back to, to normal life. And so changes, um, uh, in, 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 in our rights, right. Uh, and our understanding of the rights that, that maybe some people, maybe many people might be prepared to tolerate if you thought, um, this is a matter of two or three or four years during an urgent national emergency. And then, um, um, and then we'll all go back to normal. Um, look very different if you think this is potentially a permanent um, change in, in the landscape. And so the way you evaluate, the way we evaluated threats to democracy was not to think of these as temporary, but to think of these as, as permanent, um, uh, permanent alterations in the balance between security and civil liberties. And I think in hindsight, that turns out to have been the correct, uh, the correct way to look at it. So I think one of the things, um, uh, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but, um, but one of the things that happened is it, 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 if it didn't give birth, it certainly accelerated, um, the creation of the surveillance state in a way that we had never, uh, previously seen, uh, 9-11 provided the justification and technology provided the means. So in some ways it was the perfect storm because as technology, uh, it was increasing exponentially, uh, the ability of the government to use that technology for surveillance, surveillance purposes, um, also increased ex, ex exponentially. Um, and, um, uh, I don't think we will, ever be able to go back uh, to a uh, the world that existed before 9-11, where, where the government's surveillance capacity and surveillance interests were, were relatively targeted. Um, now we live in a world of, of kind of universal surveillance. Some of it is by big tech, uh, but some of it is by the government in, in ways that today, even 20 years later, we do not fully understand the, the, the extent of that surveillance capacity because there hasn't been then or now a lot of transparency. So, so and, and, and the question of how uh, a surveillance state coexists with a democratic state um, is a very deep and, and profound question that requires a lot of thought. Um, I would also say that um, a series of uh, decisions that the government made in nine after 9-11, which, which I think were misguided, um, um, but summarized by... Uh, Vice President Cheney's comments that the gloves are coming off, um, but the use of torture, um, the use of extraordinary rendition, um, the you know almost absolute denial of due process um, at at Guantanamo, uh, at least in in the in the early days, um, all of those decisions, I think, at some fundamental way. Uh, eroded and undermined um, both our adherence to what we like to think of, you know, in our American exceptionalism as core American values, uh, but also undermined, I think, in, in maybe a more uh, consequential way, um, faith in those American values, either the, 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 the primacy of them or the, the, um, uh, uh, validity of, of, of them. And 
one of, again, one of the early lawsuits um, that the ACLU uh, brought was a uh, another Freedom of Information Act request um, asking the government, we filed it against the Defense Department and the CIA and maybe some others, I don't recall now, asking them to produce any documents in their possession discussing torture. And I remember that we had filed that lawsuit before the Abu Ghraib pictures came out, but when there were initial press reports uh, talking about the mistreatment of prisoners in American custody, and then the Abu Ghraib pictures surfaced and uh, became a bigger issue. Uh, But ultimately, this was, you know, took time. Um, but ultimately, the ACLU received over 100,000 pages of, of documents, which we then put up on the ACLU website in the searchable database. And some of them were redacted more than others. Some were largely pages with black marker on them. You know, others contained more information. But a lot of the early stories, if you go back and look at the press, a lot of the early stories about the torture program um, were a result of information that was revealed in these documents that came out of the Freedom of Information Act request. And um, I remember saying to reporters at the time, I said, yes, absolutely, you have to read these these documents and we have to understand what they say. And you know, some of what they say is 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 quite disturbing. But let's just step back one second here. Um, and think about the fact that our government has over 100,000 pages in its files discussing torture. I don't care what it says, what they say. We have a, and, and we know that's only the tip of the iceberg because we haven't gotten um, everything by a long shot. Do you think the government had 100,000 pages in its files before 9-11 discussing what torture was and when, when the government could engage in torture and how activity that the whole world thought of as torture could be recharacterized as something else? I don't think so. And, and so 9-11 kind of normalized a discussion that would have been unthinkable uh, beforehand. Uh, and, and I think in a way um, that was ultimately very damaging domestically and, and internationally. Um, uh, internationally, it seriously compromised our ability to be what we had always claimed to be, which is the world's leading advocate for human rights abroad. Um, uh, I remember going to international conferences in the decade after 9-11 and increasingly being confronted by Europeans and others, whose response to anything we said, and I was not representing the government, I was representing an NGO, is who are you to lecture us? Um, you know, clean, clean up, clean up your own house first, and then come back and 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 talk to us. Um, and so, you know, that seems to me to have been, and I'm not sure we've yet recovered from that in terms of our, you know, international credibility and and ability to advocate for human rights. Um, It unleashed, obviously, um, uh, a massive wave of anti-Muslim feeling in the United States, which I think um, morphed very quickly uh, and was exploited uh, very quickly into a broader um, uh, anti-immigrant response that uh, we are still living with today. Um, 
And I think we also have come to appreciate the extent to which, you know, just as we were talking that the ACLU, uh, in our view at least, didn't have the luxury of focusing only on 9-11, the government came to focus only on international terrorism um, in a single-minded way as a potential existential threat uh, to the United States. It was a serious threat. I'm not sure it would, it may remain a serious threat. I'm not sure it was ever an existential threat, but it was a serious threat. And I wouldn't undermine that for a moment, underestimate that for a moment. But the government largely then turned a blind eye or ignored or didn't have the resources to pursue uh, the rise of domestic terrorism, terrorist groups in the United States, including white supremacist groups. And it is only very recently um, that the government has now begun to shift resources and has identified domestic terrorist groups as, as the greatest terrorist threat facing the United States. We might have woken up to that much more quickly if we weren't so laser focused on the possibility of another 9-11. So you, you mentioned the rise of the surveillance state, um, and you also previously mentioned uh, the, the Patriot Act, um, which actually is short for the more Orwellian, uniting and strengthening America by providing appropriate tools required to intercept and obstruct terrorism act of 2001. And, you know, that sailed through Congress with very little dissent. Um, as I recall, Barbara Lee might have been the only person to vote against. Russ, Russ, Fein, Russ Feinberg and, and, in the Senate. And I Russ Feinberg in the, the Senate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and Barbara Lee being from, uh, represented Oakland, yeah. California. Um, I, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how the Patriot Act, and it's, it's a 300-page law, and its provisions uh, for surveillance and policing have disproportionately impacted different communities. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, sort of immigrants, um, Muslims, um, but also, you know, what are we seeing in terms of um, how it links with, for example, um, we are now treating social movements differently, such as the Black Lives Matter movement versus uh, the white nationalist and, and neo-Nazi movements. Well, let me just say, I'm very nostalgic for the days when legislation used to just be named after the sponsors, when we had the Taft-Hartley Act, you know, it was now, now politicians of both parties feel compelled to come up with, with these acronyms. Um, uh, the ACLU, to its credit, um, opposed um, the uh, Patriot Act uh, at, at, at the time. That was not an easy thing to do uh, two months later when we had just gotten back into our office and, and you know, um, literally there was smoke still coming, coming, out, of the, coming out of the site. Um, the, um, let me just say some general things about the Patriot Act and, and maybe more, some more general things about legislating in the United States. Part of what was in the Patriot Act was a direct response to 9-11 and the government seeking tools that they thought were necessary to combat the threat of international terrorism. Uh, part, of, um, uh, nine, uh, part of the Patriot Act and maybe a, the larger part of the Patriot Act um, contained a wish list of law enforcement requests that they had been unable to get through Congress over the years and saw this as an opportunity um, to um, uh, uh, 
get Congress to approve things that Congress might have been more skeptical about um, prior to uh, 9-11. So it was an enormous omnibus bill. As you say, it was 311 pages. Uh, It was uh, not released in full, as I remembered, until the night before the vote was was taken. Um, I dare say that the overwhelming majority of members of Congress who voted for it uh, had very little idea of what was in it. Uh, and if they knew what was in it, they knew the headlines and they had no idea what was you know, proverbially buried in the small print of the Patriot Act. And if you look at the Patriot Act now, it's this is true of much legislation uh, that passes through Congress. It's essentially undecipher- indecipherable uh, because it's not much, much of it is not written in full sentences. So much of it is takes the form of amendments to existing law. So you'll have a sentence in the Patriot Act that says, in this pre-existing law, delete the word the and add the word a. That's all it'll say. You know, and you have to then go back to the pre-existing law figure out why somebody wants to change the to a, what the meaning of changing the to a is, and what the potential consequences of changing the to a. And that was repeated hundreds, if not thousands of times in the Patriot Act. So, so people were, were largely, largely flying blind. Um, What we, I think, anticipated at the time uh, but, you know, came to understand much more clearly um, later was that uh, the principal domestic target, at least, um, uh, because some of the tools were being used to surveil potential terrorist activity abroad, but domestically, um, the principal target uh, was the Muslim community in the United States, which was collectively um, treated as a potential uh, den of, um, of, of, of future terrorists, which um, had to be subject to, in the government's view, uh, monitoring to make sure that, um, again, we didn't repeat, repeat the events of 9-11. And that surveillance took, uh, took multiple forms. It took the form of informants. It took the form of electronic surveillance. It took the form of... Um, uh, of uh, you know infiltrating uh, mosques and uh, Muslim um, uh, religious uh, ceremonies and 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 sites, um, and I think most dangerously of all, propagating a narrative which was that uh, Muslims um, could not be ch- trusted and were not to be trusted. And if you see something, say something. But if you see somebody from somebody wearing hijab, then really say something. Um, and um, and that uh, really took its its toll, uh, I think, on 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 that community. And those capabilities were then, I think, very quickly and easily transferred in the way this always works to. Um, uh, 
social movements like Black Lives Matter as they began to erupt, you know, a decade or decade or so later. So the lessons of one experience get transferred into into the next experience. And I think it's it's telling that the government had uh, the FBI had an open investigation into black extremist movements before it ever had an open investigation into white supremacist movements in the United States. Right. That the threat is always going to be perceived by those in power to come from the more marginalized and often um, communities, uh, communities of color. Um, and, and we have, we have witnessed that. One of the things that, um, lessons to be learned is if you, is if you look back on the history of the Patriot Act, uh, the few times that there was a significant public response, nothing, there was no public response at the, when it was enacted in November of 2001, but over time, uh, the things that the government, that people reacted to was one, when John Ashcroft tried to introduce a program called Total Information Awareness, right? Um, and then subsequently, when it came out that the government was using its the tools that it had acquired through the Patriot Act uh, to collect um, information about um, uh, the telephone uh to collect telephone records on on literally everybody in the United States and store them in the NSA's super computer. Uh, When people began to think that what the government was doing might actually have an impact on their rights, right? Then you began to see some impulse from, from, from the general public. But when you, when you look at polls, for example, and that were taken you know, throughout the decade after 9-11, they're probably still taking this poll. And the poll says, would you be willing to sacrifice some of your liberties for greater security, right? Many people will answer that question, yes. Um, but when you say to them, um, when you probe it a little more, what it turns out is what they're really willing to sacrifice is somebody else's rights for their security. Um, and if you can somehow, if, if you either succeed in making people understand or, or they, they come to appreciate the fact that it's not only somebody else's rights that are being sacrificed, but their rights at all, then people's perspective on that question changes, changes dramatically. And one of the things that we learned about the, the, uh, package of tools that the government was handed in the Patriot Act is um, that it really did allow for dragnet um, surveillance in a way that um, uh, you know wasn't possible before the world of supercomputers, but also is is not the way we traditionally think of our certainly criminal justice system, which is, you know, if you wait till there's a crime and then you figure out who's a suspect for the crime and then you use your surveillance tools under judicial supervision um, to supervise the person, to, to, to monitor the person you've identified as a suspect. Here, the government's position was we're going to collect everything and then figure out after the fact um, uh what might be useful. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to put it all in our computers and trust us, we won't look at those computers unless there's a, unless there's a good reason to do so. Um, and, and the debate that went back and forth was a little bit, the, the, the one way of framing it was among those people, primarily in the government that say, the more information we have, um, the more likely we will be able to connect the dots um, 
and anticipate and identify um, people who might be thinking about the next terrorist attack, right? And people who said the way to look for a needle in a haystack is not to add more hay on the stack, right? Um, that you need to be more targeted, you need to be more focused, you just can't um, treat everybody as a potential suspect and worry about sorting it out later. It's literally, it's not only round up the usual suspects in the Casablanca sense, and that we will then, you know, figure out which one of the usual suspects is the guy we're looking for this time. It's round up everybody. Um, it figuratively round up data on everybody, uh, and then figure out how we can best use it later, later in the game. So, um, um, you know, I think law enforcement has has kind of changed dramatically. Another another just one other consequence of this that people may not think about, um, but I think is very significant is you know if you draw a direct line from nine eleven to the war in Iraq to the war to war in Afghanistan to the war in Iraq, as those wars started to wind down. What happened was you had the federal government with a lot of surplus military equipment and you had defense contractors who no longer had their best customer in the United States military because they were winding down the war and not buying more and more equipment. And that equipment found its way into urban police forces and you had the militarization of uh, law enforcement in the United States, which I think leads us directly, not so much to Ferguson, but to the response to Ferguson when the tanks roll roll into the streets in response to um, protests uh, that take place um, in Ferguson and elsewhere. So I, we're still living with the consequences. Everyone knows this Please, here, yeah. but I was in Charlottesville on August 11th and 12th. I was still at UVA at the time, and seeing the tanks roll down my street in response to the protests there, you know, was just so incredibly jarring, and that that, that this has become the normalized response um, to, you know, to, to protest has been just, and, and I don't think, you know, I think we have a whole generation you know, our, our generations now are growing up with this is normal to have to have tanks on our streets. And, and, and I don't think we have fully realized the, the impacts of, of the militarization of our of our police and, you know, that and, and, and that coming as a response, you know, or and that coming as part of um, this this ramp up um, post 9-11. Right. And I think it really is. It's, it's, it's the ramp up post 9-11, but in some ways it's the ramp down of the, of the wars. What are we going to do with all this stuff now? Oh, let's give it to the police departments. They can they can they can use it. Um, yeah. And, and and part of the problem has also been um, it's true for the national security state, but it's true even at, at a local level when dealing with um, local law enforcement, a total lack of transparency, not only um were most people unaware of this arsenal that their local police department was acquiring? In many instances, the local government was unaware of it as well. That the, you know, they they didn't get authorization for these purchases from the local city council. They just went out and got them. And if even if it was not true for the tanks, it was true for um, uh, devices like Stingray devices, which enabled the government to track cell phone uh, location in without any judicial supervision. Much of that stuff was just bought because, you know, it was the new shiny toy. Uh, and there was never a political discussion or a political debate about what the trade-offs were in using that new technology. So it's the availability combined with the lack of trans transparency and 
you know, the, the almost, I think, irresistible impulse by, um, uh, to acquire every, every new tool that's out there because who knows one day it may be helpful. I just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier that I find interesting. I remember that the ACLU opposed passage of the Patriot Act. And this was an act that, you know, obviously received significant um, support in the legislative branch. Um, although, as you also said, many of whom um, received the bill the night before the vote. What was it like being in an organization that, that, that opposed this bill called the Patriot Act in a time of war? To me, if you don't support the Patriot Act in a time of war, what does that make you? Can you speak to how the ACLU was the recipient of some demonization during this time period? Uh, that's certainly the case. Um, uh, and But it's the flip side of that is it was also the case that the ACLU received a historic amount of support, which is part of what enabled the ACLU to amass the resources that then enabled the, the ACLU to do whatever it could, where it thought appropriate to respond to what was, what was going on. So it was a little, little bit, little bit of both. And, um, but the, uh, one of the advantages, there are many advantages to, to being a civil rights lawyer at the ACLU. It's a big organization. It has resources. It has credibility. It has access to a megaphone. Um, you know, people will report what the ACLU says and does. That's not true of every nonprofit out there. And, um, and, and you know, I, I was always very, very aware of the privilege of, of, of having that platform. But the other thing is it's, it's, it's working in an organization that, Last year turned 100, uh, and so has been through a lot of battles over the years. It was it really was formed in 1920 in response to the excesses of the Wilson administration using the Espionage Act to um, imprison World War One dissidents and and the um, the Palmer raids that, that led to mass deportation of you know immigrants without hearings or or due process. We opposed um, the internment plan over at, during World War II. You know we 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 have been through a lot of of these battles before, and I think that provides a certain measure of comfort and historical perspective for those of us who are working here. So, I working at the ACLU. I I don't think that. Uh, I'll just speak for me personally. I, I don't think that the greatest risk, uh, not risk, I, I don't think that the greatest um, issue is the fact that there are people out there who won't like you. I think that just comes with the territory when you go to work for the ACL, for an organization like the ACLU. I think the bigger issue, the scary issue, I mean, frankly, is the sense that you also have to have a certain humility about what you don't know, right? And and nobody, nobody wanted to be blamed for another attack. We didn't have access to all the information the government had access to. So calibrating that line of saying, you know, when you're overreacting and when you're 
when when the government is overreacting, when the government is not overreacting, you know, in the wake of the largest attack on U.S. soil since, you know, um, Pearl Harbor and the greatest loss of life in U.S. and soil in U.S. history, right, from a foreign attack. Um, uh, that, I think, is is the thing that kept me up at, at night. Not that we would get some letters to the office that say, you know, you were going to burn in hell. Um, but, the, but the idea that maybe something we did is going to, is, 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 you know, maybe we're making a mistake somewhere along the line. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and those, 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 those are, those are hard. It's a hard, it's a hard situation to be in, I think. How have immigrant rights and immigration laws been impacted by September 11th and the U.S. response? I, I do think I do think that there is a a direct line between um, uh, the response to 9/11 and the the sort of anti-immigrant you know hysteria and and, and general xenophobia that we see in the country today. Um, I think it's been exploited by uh, politicians for you know, personal, personal, personal gain. Um, but you see that line most directly from, um, you know, if you go fast forward from, from 9-11 to Trump's announcement almost as soon as he took office on the ban of, from ban of immigration from, you know, mostly Muslim, wholesale ban on immigration from mostly Muslim countries into, into the United States. And from there it becomes a, you know, a short step to, um, you know, all, all Mexicans are are coming to the country to to engage in foul deeds, and therefore we need to lock them all up if we can't keep them out of the country, and we should keep them out of the country by separating mothers from their children. You know, I think all of that becomes a a direct line, and 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 it is not a direct line necessarily in terms of actual policy, but it's a direct line in terms of of rhetoric. And once you unleash that rhetoric, it's very hard to then contain the concept, political consequences of, of that rhetoric. And um, years ago, I had written an essay and it began with a line that said, uh, America is a country of immigrants that is distrustful of immigration. Um, and I think that that is largely true. And the United States response to immigration has always been cyclical. We've gone from periods of welcoming immigrants and recognizing them as a source of strength and renewal in the country to uh, treating them as as a threat either to our economic well-being or our national security or, um, um, you know, our notion of the United States as a place for white Anglo-Saxon um, and males uh, to um, um, predominate and control. Um, and so we are in another, another moment where um, recent immigration history is one I think we will later look back on in shame. And I'm hoping that, you know, we are reaching the end of that cycle and we will re return to a more neutral and balanced and, and, and equitable uh, position. But we'll, we'll see. Steve, uh, we are just deeply grateful for your time and sharing your, your experiences, your insight and your, your deep expertise. Um, on the consequences of the U.S. response to the September 11th attacks. We're also deeply grateful for all the work and, and the fight that you have put in, um, you know, really to preserve civil liberties uh, and, and strengthen American democracy. Uh, we, we ask this final question of every guest, and you've answered this largely <laughs> already, um, but what would you do to strengthen American democracy? Well, 
let me begin by saying I, I, I think American democracy is in real trouble. Um, um, I think our government has really become largely dysfunctional for, for, for many, many, many reasons. And the country and the world are facing some very big problems. And we need a government that's capable of developing policies that will address those problems. And I'm not sure we have that government um, at the moment. Um, you know, some of, some of my response is, 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 is simple to conceptualize. It's not simple to implement. Um, any democracy worth its salt is, ought to be a democracy that makes it easier for people to vote, not harder for people to vote. Um, and so I, uh, this, this sort of onslaught of voter suppression laws that we are facing uh, around, around the country is, um, is appalling, is appalling to me. And um, we need to get we need to get a handle on that. Um, I think we need to fundamentally fix our redistricting process. I don't think we can afford the luxury of leaving it in the hands of politicians anymore. And an increasing number of states, but still a large, a small minority of states, have transferred that responsibility from state legislatures to what are at least in theory nonpartisan redistricting commissions. I think that's an important and good thing to do. Uh, but I think there's another problem. I, I think I think um, you know whether you call it civic education, whatever you want to call it, um, there is just a loss of faith um, in 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 the government, which is which is evidenced by people's disengagement from. Um, uh, you know, all sorts of civic enterprises, but most fundamentally the act of voting. You know, with the, the voter suppression laws are terrible, but relatively speaking, they affect a small number of people compared to the people who voluntarily choose to not vote. Um, and, and, and I will just speak of my own city. We just had a mayoral primary in New York, but it was effectively the election because it's such a one-party city, um, and something like a third of the eligible voters um, voted. Two-thirds of the population didn't didn't vote in the mayoral election, and that's not New York does not make it easy to vote either. But the answer to the explanation for that is not voter suppression; it's voter apathy. Um, and somehow we have to get back to the uh, uh, convincing the the, the 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 people who in this country, uh, that democracy is not a spectator sport. It's a participatory sport. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't quite know how we do that, but unless and until we do, um, I think the country is going to continue to have real problems. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu slash civic. Until next time.